goes all the way from the Sunday of Pentecost, which is different every year. This year it's in May, uh, but then it goes all the way up until Christ the King Sunday, which we celebrated last Sunday, which is the last Sunday before the season of Advent, which starts the cycle uh, all over again. And so just as a way to kind of help us orient ourselves to where we're at in our, in our cycle, um, the, the, the bulletin is going to have the wheel and uh, which, which of those seasons that we are currently in uh, throughout, throughout the year, just to help us uh, as the people of God re- rehearse the story. And uh, I mean, I, I think that we live in a culture and in a world that has lost a, a common story. We, we, don't, we don't have a narrative. And our, our culture uh, is, is uh, I think cultures are actually held together by narratives. And we live in a culture right now where there's a, uh, the narrative is broken. And a lot of people have a very different understanding of the world in which they live. And for the people of God, uh, God offers us the narrative. He offers us the story that, that we're living in. And the liturgical calendar is just a way uh, to help us rehearse, rehearse that story. And so if you saw that in the bulletin or you saw the posters out there, or you just heard last week that this is the first Sunday of Advent, um, that, that's just a, a quick little snapshot of uh, a way that we're trying to um, lean into it uh, here, at, here at Sojourn. Gospel of Matthew, we're working our way through it. Today is Matthew part 30, and uh, we are into the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we are getting into chapter 7 today, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses. Um, verse 12 kind of works like a bridge, so verse 12 will be part of the scripture reading next Sunday as well. Uh, but today, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, and you just heard uh, Dave read those for us. They are some of the best known phrases in the Sermon on the Mount are in these verses. They are phrases that you maybe even if you've never gone to church before, if this is your first time uh, at a church, there's some phrases in there that you have probably heard before. These are some kind of uh, some of the famous, uh, famous statements. But one of the most difficult uh, statements is, is in here, and we're not actually going to spend a lot of time on that difficult statement. It's, it's verse, uh, verse 6, uh, where he talks about uh, dogs and, and pigs, and we'll touch on that briefly. Uh, but I'm just saying this is a popular uh, set of phrases. It's also, there's some complexities to it uh, as well. So let's, uh, let's see uh, what Jesus is doing here. Uh, the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is helpful for us to remember as we keep moving. Um, the intro, uh, the way that we've laid this out, the intro is Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 through uh, 520. And that's where we get the, uh, the Beatitudes and Jesus kind of sets the table for what he wants to talk about. In those final verses, um, they kind of work as double duty and they move us into section 1. Chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, give us these six antitheses where, that, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what Jesus is inviting the listener to understand is that they have to have, in verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's no kingdom for you. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were the best of the best. So Jesus' followers would have been confused when Jesus said that. And then he goes on to give them these statements. He says, you heard that you shouldn't murder. Well, I'm telling you, if you get angry with somebody, that's murder in your heart. And that's a problem too. And so as Jesus says, your righteousness has to be greater, then he also raises the bar. And he says, it's not just don't kill somebody. It's actually, you've got to deal with the anger problem in your heart. The point is you're not going deep enough. Section two, he touches on three actions 
Uh, and he, he's revealing again this sense of greater righteousness, and he wants the uh, he wants his followers to to wrestle with with these realities, and and you see them with uh, uh, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting, and these these practices that the followers of God have have leaned into for uh, two thousand years. But Jesus talks about them, and with every one of them, he gives a warning. And so it's not just give your money away. It's not just pray. It's not just fast. Jesus says, no, we got to go deeper. Why are you giving your money away? Why are you praying? Why are you fasting? Are you doing these things to try to somehow build up or accumulate your own righteousness? It won't work. It won't work. Uh, Then section three is the section that we uh, we are in. And that is uh, where uh, he kind of points us to two relationships, a relationship with material goods and a relationship with people. And so when we think about that idea of needing a greater righteousness, Jesus is saying you need a greater righteousness in the way that you interact with the stuff of the world. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And you need a greater righteousness in the way that you interact with other people. And uh, that's what we're going to try to look at today. Uh, Matthew 7 1 through 12. So Matthew 7, 1 through 12, as I just said, is about relationships. It's about relationships with people. How does Jesus want us to interact with people? And I think it's really important uh, if we're going to grapple with these verses uh, the way that Jesus did, uh, the way that Jesus wants us to. I think it's important that we understand that Jesus is pointing us towards this, how, how do you relate with people? What are, what are these interpersonal relationships that I want you to have? Jesus is, is high on community. The rest of the Bible is high on community. The Old Testament was high on community. There's this, this recognition that it takes a, a community for you to be spiritually formed. It takes a, a community for, for us to grow into spiritual is not a, a solo project. It's not a Lone Ranger project. And so what, what do relationships look like? And this reaches beyond our relationships with other Christians. This is Jesus saying, here's how I want you to interact with people uh, in, in general. So let's take a look at those, those, uh, what, what Jesus is doing here. Right off the bat, Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Judge not lest you be judged or judge not that you be not judged. Um, and it's like, whoa, like right off the bat. Okay, we're getting to it here. Ju- ju- judge not. But what does Jesus mean by the word judge? Jesus uses the word krino. It's a, a, a Greek word. The New Testament is written in Greek. And Jesus uses this word krino, which most Bibles translate as judge. But, and some of you are familiar with from the English language, that words have a range of meaning. If you look up in a dictionary, the word, uh, any word, it has multiple options for what it could mean. And in in biblical studies and the study of Hebrew and Greek, uh, we're we're taught this is called the semantic range of a word. And so a word has a, a range of potential meanings. So what was Jesus doing when he used the word krino? Well, like a lot of words, it has a realm of options. I think the spectrum, though, that we could design, if we were just going to do it just for for our help this morning, the, the spectrum could look like this, from evaluation to condemnation. And so on the, on the one end, uh, Crino could be a way in which you're just, you're evaluating it. You're, you're just saying, um, uh, you know, how, how far is it from this stage to those doors? And you give your judgment. Uh, you know, 50 feet, 80 feet. You, 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 give, you give a judgment. You're just making an evaluation. 
There's some other options there, but on the other end of the spectrum, it would be condemnation, where what you're actually saying is you're taking the seat of an, of an ultimate judge and you are making a declaration over someone. You are... And so that is the semantic range that, is, that exists with this word. And in some ways, this passage hangs on what Jesus means when he used the word krino. So, so what does he mean? Well, you know, our loves Matthew verses memorized. They might not think they do, but if you ask them about Matthew 7, 1, I bet they do. It's like, judge not lest you be judged. And so the Western American culture loves this verse because what they think it means is that everything's arbitrary. Everything's subjective. Uh, who are you to say what is right or wrong? Who are you to declare that the decisions I have made are, are moral or immoral or right or wrong? And so our culture leans into this very heavily. You know, people say you can't declare anything right or wrong. Who are you to say that? Is that what Jesus means when he says crino here? The evaluation. It can't be on that lighter end of evaluation or what you could call moral discernment. It can't be what Jesus is restricting. And the reason it can't be that is because Jesus does it. Je Jesus is constantly making evaluations, making moral discernments about what is right and what is wrong. And maybe you say, well, okay, but Jesus is allowed to. Fine. Jesus tells us to multiple times in the gospel and the rest of the New Testament calls us to be people of discernment. or what is wrong. Think about the Sermon on the Mount itself. It's what Jesus just spent all this time doing. You've heard it said that you shall not murder. I say, don't be angry in your heart. That, that is Jesus making an evaluation. It's Jesus making, having moral discernment between what is right and what is wrong. Jesus here is not saying that you are not permitted to make an evaluation, to have moral discernment. What Jesus is saying is that we have to be careful with condemnation, that we have to be careful with actually making a judgment upon a person. If you were to go back to the Beatitudes and, and check out the fifth Beatitude in Matthew chapter five, verse seven, this is what Jesus says. The merciful will receive mercy. This is like the inverse. He says, those who judge will be judged. The, the, way, the way that you interact with the world is going to come back upon you. You're actually going to experience the way that you interact with other people. And Jesus here is pointing to this idea of condemning others. You, you say, well, what's the difference, man? Are you playing games here? The difference between moral discernment and evaluation and then condemnation and like trying to make them these dramatically separate things. Well, look, I, I understand why you might feel like there's overlap. If you say that murder is wrong and that's a moral evaluation, that's a mor moral discernment, and then condemning someone for murdering, you might say you're splitting hairs. Like that's the same thing. But, but I, would, I would encourage you to, to think more about this. If you're asking like, what is the difference? I actually think it has a lot to do with attitude. When you compare condemnation versus evaluation or condemnation versus moral discernment. Uh, I just am finishing a book by David Brooks. Uh, the title of the book is How to Know a Person. 
And someone in our congregation recommended it to me last, uh, maybe two weeks ago, and I got a copy of it. And uh, if you're looking for a book, man, I would say get it. Uh, David Brooks is such an, such an insightful writer, how to know a person. And one of the things that he says in that book is that there is judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere. Judgment everywhere, understanding nowhere. And I feel like in some ways, that's what Jesus is raising the flag on, is this idea that we are so ready to condemn others. We are so ready to make like these, these, uh, these, these judgments about their condition or their standing before God. Do you remember I said that this section is about relationships? That the end of chapter six was about our relationships with material goods and the beginning of chapter seven is about our relationships with people. Well, here you go. Paul Paul addresses this. In Romans 14.10, this this is what Paul says. Why do you judge your brother? And then immediately after that, he says, why do you look down upon him? See, Paul is, is just, he's just saying what Jesus said. He's like, why do you look down upon him? You see, the point is, when you criticize, why are you doing it? When you judge, why are you judging? Are you doing it to strengthen the relationship? Are you making an evaluation, a moral discernment, in order to strengthen the relationship? Are you coming humbly? Are, are Are you seeking to maintain the relationship? Do you want to help the person that you're, you're actually observing this behavior in? What, what is your reason for coming to them? What is going on in your heart? Are you coming to strengthen the relationship or are you coming to criticize? Are, are you, is your criticism to punish, to cancel, to cause pain, to make them feel bad and to make you feel good? You've probably heard of cancel culture. It's one of the things that's uh, just a sad dynamic in our culture right now, but it's a way to get rid of someone. It's a way to, to delete them. Maybe you've noticed that our culture, when you make a mistake, they don't really want to see you say you're sorry. They want you to, to be deleted. They, they want you to be gone. And it, when, when we as Christians interact with the realities of God's law, of God's good way, Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't make moral discernments. Jesus is not saying that there isn't right and wrong. What he is saying is watch out where your heart goes. Watch out that what you're doing here isn't condemning, isn't punishing, isn't causing them to feel bad about themselves so that you feel good about yourself. Making these distinctions and these declarations about one's standing before God. Jesus does not mean that you should not evaluate, that you shouldn't discern, not even, even criticism. Criticism is appropriate. He means you should not judge in the sense of condemning, punishing, and canceling. That's why Paul says, why do you look down on them? That's, that's what Paul, when Paul says, why do you judge your brother? He's using judge, meaning condemning, looking down upon. You're not engaging with them to build them up. You're not engaging with them to strengthen the relationship. You're looking down on them, which puts you in the position of higher up, making you feel good about you. If you do live your life that way, if you do live a condemning, punishing, canceling life, Jesus says, watch out, because you will be treated that way in return. Have you noticed this? That you often, not always, get treated the way that you treat others. 
There's an old phrase, live by the sword, die by the sword. I, I, I think that there's some evidence actually over the last 15 years in this, this congregation uh, that before, uh, in, in, in 2009 and 2010, uh, God did some significant things uh, in, in this body and he brought the gospel from black and white to full color. That's how we like to talk about it. And uh, changed a lot of dynamics, brought a full, fuller understanding of, of grace. And now I look back 15 years into this and I just am always so amazed by, by the grace that flows in this congregation from you to each other and from you to me. And it's almost like there's this sense in which our church has been swimming in the beauty of the grace of God, that as bad as our sin is, the grace of God is greater, that we can actually stare at our sin and own our sin. We can repent of our sin. All of these things are on the table for us. And it sure seems like to me that we have a congregation that's ready to do it with each other. And it's this sense in which it's like, we, we, in, in, in some ways we've behaved a way and we've, we've started to be treated that way. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to, be, to, to, to behold. But Jesus is saying here, it can happen the other way. If you're going to run around condemning, watch out, you're, you're going to be condemned. If you're so ready to, to put others down, watch out, you're going to be put down. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a translation of the Bible called The Message. And this is how he translates Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. And so there's this sense in which Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't have moral discernment. We should. We should evaluate. We should even criticize behavior. There should be a recognition of right and wrong. He's saying, what's going on in your heart? Is this condemning? Are you looking down upon? Are you making grand judgments about a person standing before God. Now you might say this sounds good, but it's, it's also theoretical. How, how does it work in real life? Well, take a look at Jesus' little parable. This parable is actually kind of funny. Uh, you know, if you had a, a class full of second graders and you had them read Matthew 7, 3 through 5, and you said, now we're going to take 10 minutes and I want you to all draw a picture of what Jesus just said. Those pictures would be hilarious because you would have a guy with a two by four sticking out of his eye, trying to help somebody else with, a, with, a, with sawdust, with a splinter in, in their eye. And I just imagine these little second graders trying to draw a picture where they've got a stick figure with a stick out of their eye. It's, 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 uh, there's almost a, 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 a funny component to, what Je to how Jesus tells this story. Jesus being a little bit of a, of a comedian here. But, but what, what is Jesus's point? What, what, why, why is judging a problem? This, this judging that Jesus is concerned about. Well, first, the speck that is in your brother's eye. That's what he says in verse three. So the point here is that your brother has a speck in his eye. You know, if you have something in your eye, a splinter, a piece of sawdust, something like that, you cannot see clearly. My, my guess is that that's happened to most of us in this room, and, and you can't see clearly. Now, Jesus doesn't mean this literally. He means it figuratively. And figuratively how? Figuratively with your soul. He doesn't mean your eyeball. He, he's using this as an illustration. He says you get a splinter in your eye, and you can't see very well. The, 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 the point of the, the, the parable is, if you have a splinter in your soul, you can't see yourself very clearly. 
That if you're a person who has something going on on the inside, this, this splinter, just like a splinter in your eye makes your eye water and you can't see it and you, 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 you know, you're, 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 you're trying, to, trying to see it, but your eye is all blurry and all watery. Jesus is saying, if you have a splinter in your soul, that's going to cause your evaluation of you to be unclear. It's going to be foggy. You're going to have problems and you're going to need someone else to help you get that splinter out of your eye. You know, when Jesus is talking about this, you know, you say, well, what about a mirror? Well, you know, very few people had mirrors in this culture. That was, it was only a luxury item. Most people did not have a mirror. If you had something in your eye, you needed somebody to help you get it out of your eye. You, you, would, you would look around and be like, I, I, need, I need a friend. I need, I need somebody to help me get this splinter out of my eye. We need help. You, you do need that. If you have a splinter in your soul, you do need help getting it out. It's hard to see it. We need other people to help us see the splinters in our souls, to help us get them out. You could put this in the category of like, this is the truth. There's a moral discernment. There's an evaluation of the way that you're living your life and something is sideways. We have a hard time seeing that. And we often need someone who cares about us to engage in our life to help us see the splinters in our souls. But how? How do you remove the splinter? Well, the same way you get a splinter out of an eye. Very, very carefully. You know, could you imagine going up to your friend who has a, you know, a splinter in their eye and they say, hey, I, I, can't, I can't see, like I need help here. And you say, yeah, hang on a second. Let me go get my pliers. That you would say, no, no, no way. No, 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 thank you. You'd say, get my tweezers. Like, you'd still say, no way. How about maybe a tissue? How about some water? What, what would be the gentlest way to address this splinter that is in my eye? Look, we, we need the truth because we can't see very well. But the people that are going to help us see the truth have to have a gentleness to them have to have a kindness to them. They have to be engaging in our life in a way to where they're saying, I'm coming to you to make this relationship better. I'm coming to you to help you. I'm not coming here to look down on you. I'm not coming here to somehow condemn you. I'm actually coming alongside you because that splinter is making it hard for you to see. And you need community, you need people, but you need people who come with tenderness and with caution, slowly, gently, you know, bring, bring, bring a tissue. We need the truth about the specs, but we need the truth in love. Do you have a tendency to, to one or the other? You know, do you have a tendency to be the person who is all about the truth and all about the truth bombs? And you'll tell someone the truth, whether they care to hear it or not. And you're going to be, you know, you're, you're bringing the hammer. Forget the pliers. It's like, hey, I'm just a truth teller. I just got to call it like it is. I got to say it like it is. Are you on the other end? Where you're somebody who's all about the love? And, and, and you look at people and you have, it's almost impossible for you to bring yourself to say to someone else, have, have you considered that this part of your life might, might be harming you? That, that to bring the truth at all seems almost impossible to you? Maybe you're a product of this current culture where we actually have bought the idea that who in the world are we to ever say to someone else, this is right or this is wrong. But see, the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus, the message of the rest of the New Testament is that we need both. It's truth and love. This is repeated in Ephesians chapter four, that the way that we interact is through truth and love. 
Now, now verse six, I just said a minute ago, is, is complicated. And honestly, it doesn't fit very well. If you read a number of commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, you're gonna find just an incredible amount of options on what to do with verse six. It doesn't fit with what's going on around it. Other people try to make it work with the parable. Other people try to like make it its own principle. Uh, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't flow very well. And it's, it's a complicated verse. It says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So in a passage where we're told not to judge, now we're calling people dogs and pigs. And that doesn't feel real great. It doesn't feel real great anytime, but especially in the context of judge not. And so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but, but here, here's, here's at least what I think is going on. That verse is suggesting that some people will continually reject help no matter what you do. That no matter how many times you offer them wisdom, pearls, uh, no matter how often you offer them truth, that they are going to mistreat what you offer them. And it actually says at the end of verse six, they actually might end up attacking you. And so there's, a, there's an aspect here of where we want to move through the world as people who are coming alongside to encourage, to strengthen the relationship. We're coming alongside with truth and love. We want to be gentle and not aggressive. We, we want to love people with the truth. There are some people who will take that and, and attack you with it. And, the, and the, it seems to be some indication here that there comes a point in time where it's not wise to keep trying. Okay, so that seems like a principle that's there. But let me just throw one little thing in the mix, okay? Jesus is talking to his followers. And in verse six, he does say, do not. Do not give, do not throw. So he actually is, the instruction is to his followers. And so it's easy to read this passage and be like, those dogs, those pigs. But Jesus is actually saying, Hey, follower, have you thought about how you're doing this? Have you thought about how it is that you're bringing this to bear in the relationships in your life? Because it is possible that that person is just bullheaded and they're not going to take any of your truth. They're going to ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. And if you keep doing it, they're going to attack you with it. That's possible. But it's also possible that you're not coming quite as gently as you think. That the way that you're doing it is you're throwing it at them that you're actually bringing it to bear at a time where it's not appropriate to bring it to bear. You know, there's a lot of people that I've met in my life who have felt like projects for Christians, where Christians treat them as something they're trying to conquer. And it's like, I'm just trying to get this person to pray the prayer, man. I'm just trying to get this person to be saved. And it's like, your lost friend can feel that. And they feel like they're a project. They feel like there's some sort of thing that you're trying to conquer. Maybe Jesus is giving us a warning there too, that when you interact with non-believers, when you interact with those who are far from God, that the way that you do it, you're thoughtful with how you do it, that you actually recognize that they have a splinter in their soul and it's hard to see our splinters. So let's come with some gentleness. Let's come with some caution and some tenderness. But let's keep going in this parable because the first part is the speck in your brother's eye. The second is the log that's in your eye. Jesus is saying, think about how ridiculous it would be 
If you thought you could help your friend get the splinter out of their eye while you have a two by four sticking out of your eye. If a splinter in your eye means that you can't see clearly, how bad must your vision be if you have a two by four in there? And so Jesus is saying, have you thought about this friend? If you're trying to pick the speck out of someone else's eye and you've got a two by four in your own, your sight's worse than their sight. You, you can't even see as good as they can see. You have something that is blocking your vision. How will you ever see their splinter? Your, your vision's more impaired. But the situation is even worse than that. Do you notice that Jesus says, why? He says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log in your eye. Jesus goes to not how, he goes to why. Why don't you see it? Why are you so able to see the splinters in your neighbor's soul and you can't see the plank in your own soul? Why are we so good at seeing other people's sin and missing our own sin? That's what Jesus is bewildered by. And he's looking at his followers and he's saying, here's a funny illustration. It's like having a two by four sticking out of your eye, trying to help that person with their splinter, but you don't even know you have the two by four. He says, you're not just brash, you're actually clueless. You don't even see the problems in your own heart. You know, why don't I see my sin? Why don't I see my failures as bigger than other people's? I should. I mean, just do the math. Is it not true that you know a thousand times more about your heart than you know about anybody else's heart? Don't you? I know a thousand times more about what's going on in my heart than I know about anybody else's heart. I know the thoughts I have. I, I, I know the, the desires that I have. I, I, I know the stuff that's going on in here. And it's like, and then there's all the stuff that I don't even know. And still, I know a thousand times more about my heart than somebody else's heart. And yet, man, I am a professional at being able to point out your problems while I miss my own. Jesus says, why, do you, why are you so good at seeing the speck in somebody else and you cannot see the log hanging out of your own eye? I should be able to realize that I know more about sin in me than about sin in anyone else. But I don't and you probably don't. And you ask why? The reason is because something is wrong with our hearts. Something is wrong with us. And Jesus says, you know what this makes you? Point blank, verse five, it makes you a hypocrite. This, this makes you a hypocrite because you can't see yourself as clearly as you think you can see yourself. You should be able to, but you can't. And so then when you run around and help pick other people's specs out, it makes you a hypocrite. Why are you a hypocrite? Because you are telling others, repent of this sin while you're not repenting of your own sin. While you might not even think you have any sin. This is a total violation of verse 12, which is often referred to as the golden rule, which is treat others the way that you would like to be treated. Jesus is saying, this is all upside down. You're a, you're a hypocrite. You know, one of the things that, that I, I find a lot of frustration in right now in, in our culture is older generations 
and I'm 47, so I'm getting up there, baby. But older generations looking at the younger generations and somehow coming to these grand conclusions that they're going to help them have revival. And part of me is like, well, okay, I'm a fan of revival. This sounds like a good idea. What's the plan? And the plan seems to be that the older generation is going to tell them how to reclaim the good old days. That is a terrible plan. (laughs) I'll tell you what the plan needs to be. The plan needs to be you start with repentance. That my generation and up needs to look at the younger generation and repent for our lack of care for the things of God, for our lack of care for the community of faith, for our lack of engagement with our lost neighbors, until, until our love for possessions, our love for money, our accumulation of stuff. If any pursuit of revival from the older generations is going to start with, let us help you. That is you running around, it's me running around with a plank in our eye trying to talk to a 24-year-old about revival. We look ridiculous. The best option we've got on the table is for us to repent, for us to actually recognize that we uh, we have been guilty ourselves. Until we own the plank in our own eye, how in the world are we gonna help someone else with the splinter in theirs? Jesus says that's hypocrisy. He then goes on to say, get the log out and you can help. He says, get the log out of your eye and then you can go help that other person. We need help. But he's like, you can't do the helping until you've addressed the plank, until you've addressed the log in your own eye. He says, it's absolute hypocrisy. Unless you realize that your sins are a bigger problem, then you are not equipped to help others with theirs. Well, how do you realize that? How do you realize that? How do, how do we move forward? Well, you know, in, if you went back to chapter six, Jesus addresses this stuff with material goods, and then he ends the chapter with this great news. And he's just like, look, if you're worried about God's provision, I got such good news. You, you know the, the, the beautiful, beautiful flowers? They, they, they're, they're, they're dressed by God's grace only. He just gives it to them. So you don't have to worry about clothes, because if God will do that to the grass, won't he do it to his, his, his children? And if you're worried about food, man, I got such good news. These birds, they're, they're fed. God just gives it to them. And if he does it for the birds, won't he do it for you? Won't he do it for his kids? And there's a way in which the same pattern happens here. In the first part of this section, this, this text, verses one through six, we see the problem and we see the challenge. But then in verses seven through 12, we find out that God provides for us here too. Listen to, these, listen to these words. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So the, the, the point here is that you're, you're recognizing this is a broken system. Like my heart's broken. I can't see myself. I don't even know the plank in my own eye. Oh man, this is a bad situation. How's it going to get fixed? Jesus immediately follows it by saying, I got good news. And, and, and ask him. Ask him for help. Because if you come to the Father and you ask, he is so ready to answer. We can go to God. We can go to our heavenly father and ask for what we need. 
And we're starting a series on the Lord's uh, Prayer in January, so we'll return to this idea in a few weeks. But I want you to notice that not only are we invited to ask for what we need, we can be confident that our Heavenly Father will give us what we need. That when you come to him with these kinds of requests, he will give you what you need. And look at how Jesus explains it. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, if you earthly fathers who can't figure things out half the time, if you sometimes know what to give your kids, then won't your heavenly father know what to give you? Won't he know what to give you? You're not going to give him a stone? If he says, I need some fish, you're not going to give him a serpent? You're going to give him the thing that he needs. And Jesus says, when you come to the Father in heaven and you pray to him and you call out to him, he gives you what you need. He's not going to give you something broken. He's not going to give something that will hurt you. He's going to give you what you need. Now, is that always what you ask? It might not be the thing that you ask for, but it's the thing that you need. And your father is invested in you like that. He's not going to, you come to him for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. If you come, you come to him for fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. No way. If earthly fathers can figure it out, our heavenly father can definitely figure it out. Go and ask for help. But to ask for help, you have to see that you need it. You know, the New Testament is consistently trying to warn us about our self-righteous attitudes this way in which we kind of paint ourselves or cover ourselves and we make it seem like we don't have big problems. And there is such a grave danger for moral people in thinking that they are good and thinking that immoral people are bad. You know, the Sermon on the Mount addresses this. You've heard it said, just avoid murder. I say to you, it's all the way into the heart that you could be somebody who never commits murder. You're such a good person. You, you've never committed murder. You're such a good person. And you can get all your badges. I've never committed murder. Jesus says, have you gotten angry? Yeah, and most of us are like, yeah, in the last hour. His point is, you, your, your assembling of all of your righteousness, your building of your righteous resume, it's not what you think it is. It's worse than you think it is. It's never going to hold up. Luke 15, one of our probably favorite texts as a church is the, the parable of the, the, prodigal, the prodigal son. That's how we often know it. But the better way to think about this is that there's not one son, that there's two sons. And the younger son does have a, bad, a broken relationship with the father. He wants all of his father's stuff and runs off and squanders it. And it's so obvious that he's a mess. But that parable tells us that the older son also has a bad with the father are just as broken as the younger brother's interactions. And they both need to be brought back into the father's house. Both of them are in trouble. It's not good people in here, bad people out there. It's this recognition that we all have got splinters, that we've all got issues going on in our hearts that we are in desperate need to have addressed. In Romans chapter one, in Romans chapter two, man, right now in our culture, how many people love Romans one? where it's this very clear declaration about sexuality and about God's design for heterosexual sex. 
I'm thankful for those texts and I am appreciative for the, the clarity that we find on the pages of the Bible. But I've heard a lot of Christians really get excited about Romans chapter one. Do you know how Romans chapter two starts? He starts talking to the religious people. So chapter one talks about the irreligious. Then chapter two starts talking about the religious. And you know what Paul says? You do the same things. You do the exact same things. It's like Romans one and Romans two is just like the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you, you gotta go deeper than that. Yes, sex outside of marriage is wrong, but guess what? Lust in your heart is wrong too. And there's this recognition that this moral scorecard is a grave danger to moral people. The message is clear. There is nothing we could ever do to earn God's love. But because God first loved us. In Romans chapter two, we are told that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the recognition of what he has done for us that leads us to own our sin. And you say, how in the world did God love us? Well, let, let me close with this. Think with me for a second about the story of the Bible. The, you know, the, the Old Testament begins by telling us that God made a good where every system worked, shalom, everything right. In the third chapter of the Bible, we find out that that good world was vandalized by sin. And the consequences are beyond what we could ever comprehend. The worst consequence is that sin has separated us from God. And we are now apart from the one who made us. The rest of the Old Testament is basically the story of a group of people who were given every resource imaginable. They were given miracles. They were given the law of God. They were given prophets. They were given priests. They were given... Israel were given. And yet, guess what? No, no matter what they were given, even their, their best efforts failed. Even their best prophets, priests, and kings, all of them failed. None of them could, could live a good enough life to deal with the problem of sin and to restore humanity's relationship with God. By the end of the Old Testament, we should feel desperate. We should feel hopeless. It's like every single thing is broken. And then you know what happens? 400 years of silence. After all that mess, after that whole train wreck, 400 years of silence. Could you imagine being an Israelite and having waited and hoped, maybe David is the answer. Maybe Solomon's the answer. Maybe this king's the answer. Maybe this Messiah is the answer. All of these false hopes keep coming and going and none of them come through. And then 400 years of silence. All of these man, all of man's efforts fail and then 400 years of silence. Can you imagine the hopelessness? Can you imagine the longing, the waiting, the fighting to believe that maybe God would eventually do something? Well, then we get Matthew chapter one. And you know what we find out in Matthew chapter one? That there's a baby born and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the story takes a crazy turn. And what we realize is that the God of heaven knew that man could not solve the problem of sin himself. So God took on flesh and ripped the roof off the world and climbed in to rescue man himself. 
You know, the message of the gospel is not a story of us getting to God. It's the story of God coming to get us. And at this time of year, as we lean into the Advent season, we, we are invited to re recognize the longing for this to happen, for Jesus to come, for Jesus to come and rescue us in the only way that matters, and he was the only one who actually could. Jesus is the great gift that the world had been waiting for, whether it knew it or not. The promise of the Old Testament, the promise of Advent, is that love is coming down. That love is coming down. Uh, in, in the New Testament, we find out that, the, that God loved us first because he first loved us. That's the dynamic at play. How did he love us? He sent his son. The father in heaven so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In other words, until we see the significance of our need, we won't see the significance of Jesus until we recognize that the brokenness of this world is unsolvable, that the planks in our eyes are unsolvable, until we recognize that, we're never going to run to the Father and ask him for his help. We're never going to see Jesus as the true Savior that we all need. As we come to the table, this Jesus, he, he gave his life. That's where this story goes, is Jesus goes to a cross, and on that cross, he, he, he sheds his blood, he breaks his body, he dies in order that you and I could be restored, in order that this work that couldn't be completed by anybody else could be completed by Jesus. And as we take this bread and this cup, that's what we invite you to realize, to experience, to be filled with, is this work of Jesus on our behalf. Love came down in the form of a person, and it changed everything. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this text, complicated text. Um, a convicting text. God, I, I think I probably stand with quite a few other people here um, recognizing that the judgment of my own heart um, is often not just an evaluation. It's often not with the intention of coming alongside to encourage or to build up. It's often a looking down. It's often a judging that, that is uh, condemning. punishing. God, would you help us to recognize we, we, we so need your truth. We, we, need, we need help with these splinters. God, would you help us to see that, that love has to accompany that? And we see it most clearly in the person and work of Jesus on our behalf. So God, would you let that pierce our hearts? Would you let that change us from the inside out? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.